Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda, a podcast series focusing on the evolving complexities of the sustainability landscape with a view on addressing current issues in a concise format to help you navigate and take action. I'm your host, Dominique Barker. Please join me as we explore today's most pressing matters with special guests that will give you some new perspective and help you make sense of what really matters. And if you're buying carbon credits and using them to say that you're carbon neutral or you're net zero or making some other environmental claim, then there needs to be some kind of rules or guidelines around that. Because again, too many companies are perhaps using them in the wrong way or maybe not even doing that, but just not really thinking about what it is that they're trying to achieve. Today, we welcome Chris Leeds, Head of Carbon Markets Development at Standard Chartered Bank in the UK. Chris is responsible for developing and executing their carbon market strategy. He sits on the board of the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets, or the ICVCM, and he's also a member of the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. And I'm also proud to say a partner of CIBC's Standard Chartered is a partner and he is a key member of Carbon Place. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the need for increased integrity in the voluntary carbon markets. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Dominique, and thanks for having me here on your podcast. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. So let's start with the theme of integrity. That word integrity comes across a number of organizations like the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets. Why is that word so important and what does it mean for a market to have integrity? So I I think integrity is so important because it's all about trust. It's about believability. It's about credibility. And whether we like it or not, the voluntary side of the the carbon markets has has lacked that somewhat over the last few years. And it's been going for well over 10 years, uh, the voluntary carbon markets. In fact, you can trace it all the way back to the Chicago Climate Exchange back in the noughties. And it's got some really great ideas behind it about uh, putting money into projects that will actually help to reduce and avoid emissions and even remove emissions around the world. And that also helps to support uh, local communities. It's got some really great ideas around that. But unfortunately, because it's a, it's a, it's a very much an unregulated market, there lacks the standardization and the consistency around the rules, uh, although they get better all the time. And that's one of the things you should say about this market is it is in many ways self correcting. It has been perceived to have a lack of integrity. And it's really, really important whether, again, whether that's that, that's true or not, it's what people believe. And if people believe you lack integrity, then unfortunately, that's all that matters. And so I think that it's really important to show that there is that trust and to really establish the credibility of the market. And that's what the Integrity Council is all about, but also a number of other initiatives that, that we'll obviously be speaking about later on. What does it mean to be uh, high integrity? Well, I can give you a little acronym that we put together at the Integrity Council, which hopefully will help people a little bit of an aid memoir. So we talk about it being clean, C-L-E-A-N. So it's catalytic. It's going to mobilize finance towards mitigation, and especially in developing countries, it's going to accelerate innovation and market uptake of emerging breakthrough technologies. It's going to be local. It's going to create jobs and prosperity in local communities and deliver sustainable development co-benefits and protect and enhance those livelihoods of marginalized peoples, and particularly indigenous peoples. 
empowering, accelerating implementation of NDCs and net zero commitments and paving the way for increased ambition. Uh, and then additional, really, really important concept here. It's going to be channeling finance that would otherwise not be available into greenhouse gas removals and reductions, those projects that wouldn't happen otherwise. And then finally, it's going to be nature positive, protecting ecosystems, particularly forests and natural habitats, promoting nature-based climate solutions. So that's that's really what we mean when we say integrity. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So when we talk about integrity of the markets, we can really look at this from the supply and the demand side. And I guess when I when we think about the supply side, it's the supply of the actual credits. And I understand that the ICVCM or the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets are really looking to define high quality credits. And they're looking at creating something called the core carbon principles. Could you start with a bit of background on what those principles are? And I and I, I know you did answer a little bit in the previous question what constitutes high quality, but maybe just talk about those core carbon principles and actually maybe give a little bit of an update on when we can expect to see those come out from that group. Yeah, absolutely. So all of these standards have their own set of principles and guidelines that they that have to meet. And none of these are, are, are revolutionary. So you've got various standard setters, Gold Standard, Vera, ACR, CAR, and a number of others are actually starting to establish themselves. And I like to think of them in a way as, and I'll probably be criticized by many of my colleagues for saying this, but it's a little bit like a, a car manufacturer. They all make their different brands and, and, and varieties of cars, but they need to meet a certain standard. So if you're going to make cars for the Canadian market or for the US market, there is a standard that they have to meet. This has to be a pretty high standard, right? Because you have to make sure that it, it's got all the safety features that you need in a car. You're not building this to the lowest common denominator. You're building this to a particularly high standard. But that doesn't mean you can't have lots of lots of different varieties of those cars and lots and lots of different qualities within that. So a Rolls-Royce still needs to have safety belts and all the safety features that you might and might see in a in a budget car. And again, we're not talking about budget carbon credits here. We're talking about creating a high quality threshold that everybody is going to have to meet. And that's the point. It's that that's the idea of this high quality threshold that all of the standard setters have to meet. We're setting the bar initially, and then we'll then look to continually raise the bar. Now, as I said earlier, that's one of the things that the voluntary carbon markets does in many ways, because as technologies improve and as projects no longer are, are additional, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, then some of these methodologies and these recipes for creating a carbon credit will fall away and you won't be able to use them anymore. But new ones will appear and we'll be continually looking to bring new capital into these markets. So the core carbon principles really focus on things like this additionality criteria that I talk about. They look at permanence, particularly when you're looking at things like forestry-related credits and what happens if there's a reversal of some sort carbon leakage. You know, if you're reducing carbon in one area and then actually carbon emissions in one area and they're going up somewhere else, we're ensuring that there's no double counting and we're ensuring that there is the standard sets of integrity that you really need around a carbon credit to understand what they are. But what we're trying to do with the core carbon principles is go to another level. And we set out these principles, but the, in many ways, the important thing is what we're going to also be setting out with them, which is what we call an assessment framework. And that's going to allow the experts within our group to be able to go away and assess all of the different methodologies and the different standards. So we're going down firstly to the standard level, so whether that's VERA or gold standard or CAR, 
And then we're going to go down to the methodology. So we're going to be looking at methodologies for forestry or methodologies for renewables to say whether they do actually meet the criteria, these, these principles that we set out. And so by the end of the year or certainly beginning of next year, we'll start to know which credits and which methodologies meet those um, quality threshold standards. And that's really where we're going with this at the moment. So do you see them evolving over time? Do you see them changing over time? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we'll, we'll be talking about when we release these is that there will be signals to the market saying, you know, these are the things that we think are okay now, but this is where we see the, the trajectory, the movement, the, the momentum going and how we're going to see these methodologies continually improve, but evolve. It's not just about improvement. It's about how the market evolves and therefore they will need to evolve with them. So for example, if you look at things like the carbon capture and storage, we still don't have a methodology for that yet. And, and once that comes, gets into place, we'll see carbon credits getting generated around those types of technologies. But there may be a time in the future where that becomes an adopted technology. It's no longer additional. It no longer needs to support the carbon markets. And then we'll move on from there and the, and the bar will raise again. Well, and that brings us to the next question. You've mentioned this word a number of times today and the concept of additionality. And I gather from what you've just said, I did solar project development. At one point, solar energy, having carbon credits associated with them would have been additional because it wasn't economic to produce a solar project without it. Maybe you can just talk through that concept and talk about additionality. And for many in our audience in Canada, renewables is a large part of our economy and growing why renewables would not be considered additional, or maybe they are, maybe if you could just touch on that in particular and and define additionality. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it is a case-by-case basis, and that's actually the way most of the standards work. But the whole idea behind additionality is that it's going to get capital and funding into projects that wouldn't get it otherwise. It's The whole idea behind a carbon credit is it's creating that support to get money into projects that need it. So in a sense, it is, it's a subsidy, but it's a way of doing that through other means than through a government, actually, or a local authority providing a subsidy. It's market-based. The subsidy will depend on supply and demand, and it varies because of that. But it is about you know, making sure that it goes into projects that wouldn't happen otherwise. So if building a solar farm or, or erecting a, a wind farm is actually the most cost-effective way of generating power locally, then why does it need any further subsidy? Why does it need any further support? Now, that does depend, as I say, you know, it, it may be even in parts of Canada, it may, be, may differ from one side of Canada to another where, you know, you see different conditions. But certainly what we are looking at is most of the developed world, certainly the middle income countries and, and high income countries don't need support for these types of investments. Least developed countries, which is actually a, a defined term within the UN, there's a list of them you can go and see, that we've kind of said, well, they need all the help they can get. And, and in most of those cases, it's any support for any type of, of electricity generation is going to you know, be, be welcomed. But what we want to do is try and tilt the playing field to ensure that rather than going off and building fossil fuel generation, then they can go down the the route of actually make it very easy for them to go and put in solar and wind and other technologies like that that will support it. Obviously, batteries are an important part of that to ensure that you get the integrity of the system because of the intermittency of those other, other forms of generation. But this is all changing and this is all very much becoming much more easily available. But if we are putting money into projects that would already happen, then you're not actually, you're not changing anything. You're not making things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. This is why actually when we look at forestry, 
and some of the nature-based projects, they are so popular at the moment because it's pretty obvious that there isn't much you're going to get from a rainforest if you leave it there. Right? As of today, the economics tell you that, well, the, the standing forest is worth obviously a lot less than uh, a patch of, of, of earth that you can actually convert into some, some sort, sort of agricultural land. And this is what's happening in places like Brazil and Indonesia and elsewhere. You know, these virgin rainforests have been converted into arable land, which we're benefiting from in the West because we're getting, you know, soya meal or or palm oil or again food for animals and for meat products and such like. So, you know, this is where we're trying to again change the economics and make it more viable for projects that will actually reduce and, and even remove emissions around the world. Great. Thank you. So the key word for this podcast, the word additional. So I'm going to confuse our audience by introducing another acronym, uh, the VCMI. I understand that the VCMI or the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, that they're looking to provide guidance on the demand side. So the folks who actually buy carbon credits. Can you speak a little about what that means and why it's important? Yes. And while the VCMI is not directly related to the Integrity Council, the ICVCM, many of the people who are working on both those groups are common. I know a lot of them and I work very closely with them and, and they're doing some great work. But quite early on when we were looking at the TSVCM, which is where the Integrity Council came from, the task force for scaling the voluntary carbon markets, we decided that we were going to focus on the supply side, the quality of supply, but the, the quality of demand was just as important. In fact, if in many ways, if not more so, because it's around what is it that you're going to do with that carbon credit? What is the actual claim that you're going to make around that? And if you're buying carbon credits and using them to say that you're carbon neutral or you're net zero or making some other environmental claim, then there needs to be some kind of rules or guidelines around that. Because again, too many companies are perhaps using them in the wrong way or or maybe not even doing that, but just not really thinking about what it is that they're trying to achieve and why they're using carbon credits and what we're actually trying to gain from doing that. As I said, you know, it's about getting money into projects that wouldn't happen otherwise. So that's brilliant. But it, in many ways it's obviously being able to give companies that environmental integrity themselves, that we're carbon neutral, we're net zero. But if they're not doing other things to ensure that they're actually reducing their emissions uh, internally as quickly as possible, and all they're using, all they're doing is using carbon credits to to be able to to make some claim, then that's probably not what we want people to be doing. We want people to be committing to making those emissions reductions in the first place, to committing to be net zero, to committing to a science-based target and going down that trajectory. But we also realize that actually going to net zero or even reducing your emissions to zero is going to take some time and it's not going to happen overnight. And in fact, in many sectors, it's going to take many years. If you particularly think about things like aviation or shipping, steel and cement, these are really hard to abate sectors. There isn't the technology around today that can actually help us to reduce emissions quickly or certainly cost effectively. I mean, we could do it conceivably with, with some of these industries, but it's very, very expensive to do so. You know, sustainable aircraft fuel is very expensive and very scarce, for example. And even then, you're not actually reducing emissions to zero. So what's the alternative? Well, it's to say, I'm going to put money into projects that will reduce emissions elsewhere. Now, in the older days, we used to talk about offsetting. We still do. A lot of people talk about offsetting. So basically, it's saying, well, I can't reduce my emissions, so somebody else will do. So, And, and I think that still has its merits. I think it's also very important to talk about the contribution that we're making to reduce emissions somewhere else in the world, even if we cannot do so today. 
And that, again, is why we come back to additionality, because it's only if it's going to happen anyway, then you're wasting your money if you're going to be putting it into projects that aren't going to actually move the needle and to reduce those emissions that wouldn't otherwise happen. And so that's why it becomes so important. But both sides of the equation are equally as important. The supply side, integrity and quality, and the demand side, integrity around why you're actually using carbon credits and what you're using them for. So I hope our audience understands. So to summarize so far, we've been speaking about the integrity of the supply side, and that's defined by the core carbon principles that are coming out of the group that Chris is working on, the Integrity Council on Voluntary Carbon Markets, and the integrity of the demand side. So that's the corporates or consumers that are purchasing credits. I suppose it's more the corporates and how they are disclosing and using those credits to negate or offset their operational emissions. So let's end off with something that's a bit bigger picture. Chris, how does the development of carbon market integrity help us move forward to a more sustainable or net zero future? So I've always seen this market as being a stepping stone. It's a bridge to something much bigger. Now, ideally, we would have a global carbon market that's put in place by the UN. Now, that's been very difficult to achieve because of the politics around it. There was a big breakthrough that happened in Glasgow at COP26 in November last year, and that was where they agreed the Article 6 arrangements. Now, I won't go into into too much technical detail there. This is Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. I'm sure your, your audience, if they have time to go and Google Paris Agreement and Article 6, they'll be able to find lots and lots around that. And if anybody wants to speak to me about that afterwards, I'm very happy to. But it did help to establish the start of a, an international carbon market that would allow the transfer of, of carbon credits between nations and that will potentially largely follow some of the principles that are laid down by the voluntary carbon market around additionality, around permanence. It would be great if we saw that those core carbon principles were adopted around the world. Because if governments start to say, well, I'm willing to accept credits that actually meet the core carbon principles for some environmental tax that they're imposing, which is what Singapore are doing and potentially what we're seeing in China and Japan as well. Once you start to see that happen, you then start to see a fungible market develop. Once you see that fungible market develop, we start to see a global price for carbon emerge. And a global price for carbon will then create the right signals across the globe to actually allow the right incentives to to reduce carbon as quickly as possible. So we avoid the tragedy of the commons, the idea that basically there is this free resource out there. In other words, being able to emit CO2 without any penalty In fact, there is a cost. There's a massive cost, both economically and environmentally. And that's where I think I would really like to see things. A poignant point, given that uh, you're calling in from the UK, where we're hitting not only record temperatures, but I think I saw 20 degrees above normal. It's just out of this world. Chris, I want to thank you, not just for today's podcast, but I want to thank you for your leadership in the carbon markets and Bill Winters and your organization standard charter that has been so important in terms of defining integrity and to work towards this common goal. We really need all of us. Collaboration has been a word that we've used across a lot of the podcasts we've used. And so I want to thank you very much for you and Bill Winters and Standard Chartered's contribution to the carbon markets. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dominique. And I appreciate the opportunity. Please join us next time as we tackle some of sustainability's biggest questions, providing different perspectives to help you move forward. I'm your host, Dominique Barker, and this is The Sustainability Agenda.
The materials disclosed on this podcast are for informational purposes only and subject to our code of conduct as well as IROC rules. The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. This communication is tailored for a particular audience and accordingly this message is intended for such specific audience only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. This communication should not be construed as a research report. The services, securities, and investments discussed in this report may not be available to nor suitable for all investors. Nothing in this communication constitutes a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any specific investments discussed herein. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in this podcast. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual speakers, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. The speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to those instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, its subsidiaries and affiliates provide products and services to our customers around the world. For more information about these legal entities, as well as the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com.